I was just reflecting as Dolan was speaking there on the number of times in Scripture, and we should probably do a study of it sometime, uh, of when God speak, God shows up and when God shows up in power in the book of Acts. And the common theme when God shows up is that his people are together. And what do the people do when they're together? They, yeah, they sing some, yeah. But most of the time that they're together, they're, they're praying. It says they're, they're gathered in prayer. It seems to be from just the way the book of Acts tells the story. They spend more time praying together than they spend devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching or to singing or to, or to, to psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. It seems that the majority of their time spent together is in prayer. There's something powerful when God's people gather together and pray. Um, we're going to be in the book of Genesis uh, this morning. This is our last um, Genesis sermon in this series of encountering God, and we're going to talk about the great wrestling match between God and Jacob in Genesis chapter 32. But first I want to acknowledge another fighter in 1517, just a couple of days, we'll see the anniversary of 506 years ago in 1517, the famous act of Martin Luther on Reformation Day, October 31st, was to post his 95 theses on the Wittenberg door. Uh, Martin was somebody that struggled, reflected, considered what is the truth of God, who is God, how do I relate to God. The passage that I read in my prayer uh, Romans 1, 16 and 17 was so foundational. It was the verse that really sparked the full understanding of the gospel for Martin Luther that really caused his frustrations, his difficulties he was having with the established church of the day to boil over into what we now know 500 years later as the Reformation. Uh, we stand, as, as do all Protestant churches, non-Catholic churches, we stand in that heritage We've benefited greatly from that, um, not just doctrinal movement. That's a misunderstanding. The Reformation was far more than a doctrinal movement. The Reformation was a, was a renewal movement, a movement in which the power of God, the Spirit of God, and the truth of God flowed freely through a number of people as people encountered God in a way that they, they hadn't imagined or understood before. The gospel was preached in a new way, with new vitality, new clarity. And it was sparked in so many ways by that, by that one act of October 31st, 1517. So it's good, 506 years later, to recognize the significance of that. But it's interesting to me to talk about Jacob, who is a trickster, a fighter, a wrestler in the, in the line of Martin Luther, who became a fighter, a fighter against um, the Pope as one, a fighter against other uh, teachers of false doctrine, a fighter against the sale of indulgences, a fighter against a misunderstanding of the gospel, and a man that God used tremendously. God uses people that are bold and strong and, and confrontive with the message of the gospel. But God also humbles and shapes those people through significant circumstances and significant encounters. 
And so Jacob is one that we'll see. His life is crazy. His life is eventful, traumatic, full of conflict from the beginning till the end. But there's this one central story that shapes all other conflicts, all other wrestling, all other, other fighting that takes place in Jacob's life. There's this one event that shapes and reforms who we know Jacob to be because it's an encounter with the one true God. So before we get to Genesis 32, I'm going to give you a short overview of Jacob's life because as I said, it's full. In Genesis 25, and, and listen, here's what we've done for the last few weeks. We've been in three generations of Abraham and his family. Really, for the last four weeks, we've been just basically Abraham's generation and a little bit into Isaac and Ishmael. Now, this is, is Abraham's grandson, Jacob, Isaac's son, that we're going into today. There's a lot, a lot in the book of Genesis over the course of 20 chapters about the life of, of Abraham to Jacob and then Jacob's descendants and the stories of Joseph and all of that. Read it. I'd really encourage you. I'd really encourage you that the, the patriarchs, those fathers of, of, God's, of God's family, from Genesis 12 all the way to the end of the book of Genesis, it's four generations of people. There's a whole lot of Genesis, a whole lot of generations in Genesis 1 through 11. But 12 through the end focus solely on these four generations. It's powerful stuff. But I'm going to try to summarize for you in just a couple minutes um, seven chapters. So in, in chapter 25, God chooses one of the sons of Isaac. Now you remember last week, the last couple weeks, we talked about this difficulty of this whole Isaac-Ishmael dynamic. God chose the child of promise, not the child of human solutions. Ishmael was the child of human solutions. Isaac was the child of grace, the child of promise. It's very clear why Isaac was the one through whom God wanted to build his line. It is not clear why Jacob and not Esau. And from the beginning of their lives, these two brothers, who are twins, are wrestling and in conflict. You see them, the story is told in Genesis 25 of them wrestling in the womb. But from the beginning, God says, Jacob's the one. Not Esau, Jacob. Jacob's the one. And you think, well, why can't, why can't it be both? And there's a cultural aspect. There's the, the fancy word for it is, is a primogenitor, where there's, there's this movement in the ancient world where the bulk of the inheritance went to one heir and not split amongst multiple heirs. Why? So that your family could build wealth over generations. Because if, one, if dad builds up a lot of wealth and then splits it evenly among the kids, none of those kids are as wealthy as the wealth that dad has built up. So the thought was, if you leave 90% of your wealth to a single heir, it keeps the family's status within society and keeps the wealth to a greater degree. So that was the normal practice. That was the air that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of them were breathing around. That's what everybody else was doing. God was doing something different. It wasn't about wealth. It wasn't about livestock. It was about God building a very specific line of blessing. And in each of these stories, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, he is picking a single heir until he gets to Jacob. And then Jacob has 12 sons. 
And all 12 tribes get to enter into this inheritance, this covenant of promise that is told here. But in in chapter 25, we start with Jacob and Esau in conflict. God chooses Jacob, doesn't choose Esau. Esau. We know that's going to be dramatic from the beginning. Now, at the end of chapter 25, as the boys are older, Jacob tricks Esau with a bowl of soup to get his birthright. Jacob says, here, I'll give you this soup, but you know, give me your birthright. And Esau agrees in a moment of desperation. Well, later, Jacob had to trick, trick Isaac, his father, in a different way. So Esau had already sort of said, yeah, Jacob, you can have my birthright, whatever. But he knows that actually the blessing comes from the father, from Isaac. So you have Jacob, Esau, and their father, Isaac. Rachel, uh, sorry, Rebecca, Jacob's mother, Rebecca says, you know what, Jacob, I want you to receive the inheritance, not Esau. And so Rebecca works with Jacob to trick the father Isaac in chapter 27. You've probably heard that story where there's, there's some, um, some goat's hair that Jacob puts on his arm so that his dad, who is losing his eyesight, old Isaac, can can see, can't see who the son is that's talking to him, but he grabs the arm and he feels the hair and it's goat hair because Esau's hairier than Jacob is. This really interesting story. And it's one of those, you're like, what is God doing here? But he's telling us something about who Jacob is. The name Jacob means trickster. And from the beginning, we see that that's just who this guy is. He tricks his brother into stealing the birthright. He tricks his father into giving him the blessing, and and Isaac, the father, does give Jacob the blessing. But the interesting thing about about chapter 27, read it and see what I'm talking about, is when Isaac proclaims the blessing over Jacob, Isaac's like, oh, he's going to be blessed. And it's like, you, you ask the question, you should ask the question, as a reasonable reader, why? Why is Isaac the the just powerless to control which of his sons is blessed. If you go back and you read 25 through 27 in context together, you recognize that what is happening is God has told Isaac, this is the way it's going to happen. And Isaac is more like his father than he wants to admit. Aren't we all kind of like that, right? Isaac is more like his father than he wants to admit. And Isaac is fighting God's way from the beginning. You see in that passage, Isaac prefers Esau. Rebekah prefers Jacob. God chose Jacob and said, it's not about favorites. I'm telling you, I'm going to use Jacob. I'm going to bless Jacob's line. Isaac's fighting it until Jacob and Rebekah trick him. And it's this sudden realization, I've been fighting God for my son's whole lives. And God has blessed him anyway. God has chosen Jacob. He's going to be the one. So then Jacob has to run away because Esau is mad. Esau is violent. Esau is stronger. So Jacob runs to his mother's family to find a wife and to let his brother cool down. And then God sends a dream to Jacob. It's a ladder. You've heard of Jacob's ladder. That's chapter 28. And God assures him in this vision and in this dream that the blessings said to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, reiterated in 15 and 17, Those blessings stated to Abraham are going to come through Jacob. That's Genesis 28. So God speaks to Jacob. God shows up to Jacob. God is promising Jacob something. And then 29, the trickster gets tricked. Genesis 29, you've probably heard this story too. 
Jacob falls in love with a woman. There's a problem. The woman has an older sister. And the dad, Jacob's father-in-law, doesn't want the younger sister to be married in front of the older sister. So Laban tricks the trickster. Laban, the father of Leah and Rachel, tricks Jacob into marrying Leah and makes, her, makes him work for seven years to marry Rachel, but then he marries Leah instead, and then he makes him work for another seven years to marry Rachel. And you see this crazy story of Jacob the trickster's life where he's being tricked. And then Laban forces him to stay for a while because Laban knows God is blessing me because of Jacob. So, so Abraham, remember Genesis 12, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. That's true here in Genesis 29 through 31. Laban is being blessed because he's keeping Jacob around. He's actually tricking Jacob, and God's still blessing him just because of Jacob's presence. It's odd the way that God is working. This is God's purpose. This is God's plan. But then the trickster tricks his way out. Read in Genesis chapter 30, and, and Jacob and Laban come in with this deal, and Laban is crooked about the deal, where he says, Jacob, you can have the spotted lambs, I'll have the pure lambs. Well, then Laban is, is, is taking the spotted lambs too, hiding them from Jacob, so Jacob never builds up the requisite wealth to be able to leave and be on his own. So what does Jacob do, the trickster? He finds a way to take reeds and sticks that will mark the lambs. And he puts the lambs in all these marking sticks so that they're artificially marked. He's a trickster. He's finding his way out. He's relying on his own devices, his own wisdom, his own ingenuity to find his way out of circumstances. And all of that brings us to Genesis 32. He's finally gotten away from Laban. He had to trick Laban. He had to run from Laban. Then he still had to negotiate with Laban. He's out. He's on his own. And he's trying to go back to the promised land, to the land that God said he would bless Abraham and his descendants and Jacob's the chosen grandson of Abraham. So Genesis 32, it's all coming to fruition. Jacob is ready to go back into the land. And what's the problem? Esau's still there. And Esau's just chilling. He's living in the land of promise while his brother, the son of the promise, is away, afraid of him. And Jacob, as he's done his whole life, schemes. He has to come up with a scheme because he doesn't want to face Esau face to face without some level of protection, some level of preparation. So what Jacob does is he divides his, his wives, his children, his livestock, and his servants, and he sends them group by group to Esau. His strategy is, I'm going to send a portion of my servants and livestock to Esau and say, These are, this is a, a group of people, and this is a gift of livestock from your brother Jacob. He's eager to meet you. And so he sends multiple groups, small groups, to Esau to sort of butter him up. Multiple gifts of livestock to Esau to, to hope that maybe Esau's forgotten about the whole time that Jacob spent his entire life tricking him. And then Jacob's going to come. But what Jacob does is he even separates himself from his wives and his children. Je Jacob separates everybody from each other so that whenever Esau's wrath really gets poured out, maybe only some people are killed. 
That's why he makes all these divisions. To number one, give Esau multiple gifts. But number two, be prepared in case Esau gets really mad, which is what he expects, and starts killing people and livestock. Maybe some will have a chance to get away because he's divided them up into all these little groups. Crazy. But clever. That's who Jacob is. He's fearful. He's clever. He finds his own ways out. And here he is in chapter 32, preparing to meet for the first time in over 20 years he spent working for Laban. 20 years since the day he tricked his father and ran out afraid, and his mom said, go live with my brother and marry one of his children and find yourself a wife among the people of my brother. So for the first time in over 20 years, he faces his brother, his arch rival, the one who has been his nemesis his entire life. And at the last moment, Genesis 32, this is what happened. Genesis 32, we'll start in verse 22. I think that was like five minutes in seven chapters, okay? So we, you, y'all, y'all can go back and read it and check what I said, but that gets us to where we are. Verse 22, the same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. So there's the context. He's divided up all of his servants and livestock, and he's kind of kept his family with him, and then he sends his family. He says he crosses the ford, but then he sends them on their own. And he must have returned over to the other side of the river, and he sat there alone. And why? Is it because he thought, you know what, Esau's going to kill me. I probably deserve it. And if Esau kills me, I should just be alone. So he only kills me. I need to face my brother alone. Or is it because he remembers that time 20 years before as he was running from Esau, he saw the ladder come down from heaven, he heard the voice of the Lord, and he heard that God was going to bless him and maybe he just needs another wilderness encounter with God. Maybe that's what he was looking for. But in the solitude and in the silence of that night, you see Jacob at a desperate point. His arch rival, his nemesis, his brother, he's got to face him tomorrow. And he's either going to be forgiven and welcomed home into the promised land or he's going to be killed. He, he has no idea what's going to happen. Can you imagine coming into somebody, your arch rival, 20 years later? You have no idea what they've been thinking. You have no idea how they've processed what's happened. So for the first time in 20 years, he's coming into this conflict. He's going to face his brother in something incredibly surprising and incredibly unique in Scripture happens. 32 verse 24, And Jacob was alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. And then he said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with man and have prevailed. 
Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of, his, of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. So this is the word of the Lord that God has given to us, God has preserved for us to see who Jacob is. And the question that every one of us who follow Jesus, every one of us who follow Jesus, need to be able to answer What is God saying through this story? Who is God in this story? And what does it mean to follow the God who wrestles with a man and touches his hip and leaves him with a limp? The setting we know, Jacob was wealthy but divided his wealth to protect himself and to protect his assets from Esau, but also maybe to impress Esau with a cycle of gifts. Jacob's all alone, no servants, no children, no sons, no defenses at all. Jacob's alone, and a man comes up and wrestles him. The man is unidentified throughout the whole wrestle match. And it's not till the man leaves that then Jacob identifies him for us. In verse 30, Jacob says, I have seen God face to face. So this man is the same as who encountered Abraham, spoke to Abraham as the angel of the Lord, said, I'm going to, a year from now, come back. You're going to have a child. Sarah laughs. It's the same angel of the Lord figure that is God Himself. Because so many times we have a messenger from God, an angel from God, in this passage, a man. And yet, as soon as that person walks away, we see the figure in Scripture says, that was God Himself. I saw God. I wrestled with God. So this is another one of those stories, like the ones we've had over the last few weeks, where God himself, in whatever form, whether it's a pre-incarnate Christ or however you want to understand that passage, God shows up in the form of a man and wrestles with a man, Jacob. But the weirdest thing is that God, in verse 25, the man saw that he did not prevail. Why? That's probably the hardest question of this passage. I mean, you think, listen, if, if you're Jacob's buddy and Jacob comes up to you and tells you this story and says, hey, yeah, that place over there, I called it Peniel because I wrestled God, I saw him face to face, and yet I survived. And you're like, bro, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, that's not, that's not what happened. You, th- there's no way you wrestled with God and you somehow survived. That's not what could have happened. But this is the way Moses, as the author of the Pentateuch, these first five books, that's the way the story is communicated to us. That the man did not prevail against Jacob. And then when the man saw that he didn't prevail, this, is what, this feels a lot more like God and God's all power, all strength. Um, the, the English word here in verse 25 is he touched his hip socket. Now what do you think the Hebrew word study reveals that touch means. It means touch. It doesn't mean wrench. It doesn't mean punch. 
It doesn't mean like forcibly grab and rip at his hip socket. It means the man touched. Touched Jacob's hip. And all of a sudden, this man who should not have a weak hip, it just pops out. It pops out in such a way that it leaves him limping because it's put out of joint. And so now you have Jacob who has been wrestling, matching force for force with this man who is God, matching him strength for strength all night long. And as day is approaching, Jacob is still desperately holding on and he says, I need you to bless me. And God does. And God asks him, what's your name? God knows his name. But God asks him, what's your name? And just like he did for his great-grandparents, or for his grandparents, God renames Jacob. God renames him Israel. What does Israel mean? God fights. The name Israel. God fights. For generations of Israel from this point on, we know what that means. God fights for the nation. On the, on, on the banks of the Red Sea, God says to the nation, The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. That's the concept of Israel. God is fighting. Don't worry about it. God will fight for you. With Gideon, God fights the battle. They don't really do much of anything. All throughout, Jehoshaphat, God fights the battle. All throughout the series of all the wars of Israel, when God is blessing the nation, it is because God is fighting. That's what Israel means. God fights. But for Jacob, it meant something a little different, right? In context, is God fighting for Jacob? No, it sounds like the meaning of the name is that God fought Jacob. Jacob fights God. So what gives? What are we trying to see here? In whatever sense this is meant, at the end of the day, Jacob receives the blessing of God, receives great encouragement, receives great joy, purpose and this inner strengthening because he's able to walk away in confidence saying I saw God face to face and I lived and I survived and and then from here the story goes he goes and he faces Esau and and it's not nearly as dramatic as we're thinking it's going to be because this is the climax of Jacob's life right here it's not Esau it's not Laban the stories we remember about Jacob are those times when he's tricking Esau or Isaac, he's, he's rivaling Isaac, he's being tricked by Laban, he's tricking Laban. Those are the things that we remember about the trickster. The climax of his life, though, is when God touches his hip and knocks it out of socket and chooses to bless him anyway. And so we have to ask the question, what is God doing here? What is God doing in Jacob and what possibly could God be doing in us? It's interesting that in verse 33, or in chapter 33, verse 1, Jacob lifted up his eyes almost immediately. He's limping away, thinking about, I just saw God face to face. And there's, there's Esau. He divided the children among Rachel and Leah and his two female servants, put the servants with their children in front, Leah with her children, and Joseph, and then Rachel and Joseph last of all, and he went before, him, before them by himself. And he came to his brother 
and his brother ran and greeted him. It's just, it's nothing. It's a whole lot of nothing. It's Esau greets him with warmth and kindness because the climax was not Jacob's encounter with Esau. And the struggle, the battle, the fight wasn't Jacob's battle with Esau or Jacob's battle with Laban. That's not the battle that defined Jacob's life. The battle that defined Jacob's life was his battle with God. And here's the way I want to unpack this. I want to unpack this with some principles that I think can bring it home to us. Number one, people fight. That's not revolutionary, Tim. I know. We're fighters. We want to fight against things. We want to fight for things. We find our purpose. The best way to find a purpose in life is to find something you're passionate about and that you can fight for and that you can represent and fight for people that need it. That's a way of finding purpose. But we all wrestle against something and for something. And we spend our lives often misdiagnosing the problem with those fights. If you were to say, if somebody were to ask you, let's we sit down in a therapy session, what is your greatest problem in your life? Many of us. Many of us will misdiagnose that problem and put the problem on the face of a person and say, well, you know, it was my dad. He was angry. He was harsh. He had a short temper. And here I am as, as an adult trying to overcome the, the trauma, the impact of my father in my life. Or maybe it's, you know, it was my, my sibling. I thought they were my brother. He was so close, but then he became a rival. My best friend in school, he turned against me. My ex, we were married, we were in love, and then, and then she changed and she left me. My boss, he's kept me back. He's held me down. He's never liked me. He's ruined my career my children, I loved them so well. And then they turned against me and everything was perfect then, but then my children have created this, this problem in my life. And we might diagnose the problem as all of these people, they're the problem. This rival, this boss, this ex, this parent, this child, whoever. The real trauma in my life, the real pain in my life, the real hardship in my life, everything would be better if just that person were fixed or gone, or whatever. And for Jacob, what was his problem? First it was Esau, then it was Laban, and then we find out it was never Esau, it was never Laban. The enemy that Jacob was facing was God. But here's the problem. God was not the right enemy. Jacob was his own enemy. That's the story of sin, and that's the story of all of us, brothers and sisters. Because point number two, people, point one, people fight. Point number two, God fights. And boy, does that get uncomfortable. Because what is God fighting for? Is he fighting to proclaim his grandeur over Jacob so God can make himself feel better about himself? No. In, in all of the difficulty of interpretation of the phrase that the man did not prevail against Jacob, no one believes that God is unable to defeat this trickster. 
But all of the commentators, all of the sermons I've listened to on this passage, you get back to some concept of the idea where God withheld himself from crushing Jacob because God had already chosen Jacob. God, Romans 9, loved Jacob. God chose Jacob in love. I will love him. I will bless him. Even when he's a rotten trickster. Even when he thinks that the best way to be successful in life is to manipulate everyone and everyone around him so that he can get what he wants. God says, I love him. I chose him. I'm going to fight for him. But sometimes when God fights for you, it feels like God is fighting against you. Because what God had to do is he had to weaken Jacob. He had to weaken Jacob's pride. He had to weaken Jacob's self-reliance. He had to weaken Jacob's human defenses so that he could really get through. And he could really encounter Jacob as God so desperately wanted to encounter the man whom he loved. And so God fights not his beloved chosen son, Jacob. God fights the roughness of the sin of Jacob. God fights the disobedience of Jacob. God fights the trickster so he can take the trickster and turn him into the man who bears the name of the God who fights for his people. Think about that. Think about the name change. This is as radical as a name change as you get. You think Abraham, it's cool. Abram goes from Abram to Abraham. You know what that name change means? Father to father of many. Not that radical. Not that explosive. But can you imagine if your whole reputation, your whole life, you were the trickster? And then you left being the trickster to being the one who represented the God who fights for his people? That that's now your identity? That's now who God himself has called you to be? Jacob was living in the name that he was given. And now he's called to live in the name he was given. Jacob was the trickster. And now he's called to be the one who represents the God who fights. Paul would say in, in Romans in all the way in Romans 7, in the new covenant, in those that believe in Jesus, the age in which we all live, Paul would wrestle and struggle in Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, I do not want to sin anymore. I do not want to keep doing the things I do. I need a way out of this fighting, of this grasping. I want to be who God has called me to be. And Paul, the great apostle who wrote 13 books of the New Testament, is still struggling with his sin in the greatest doctrinal book in the New Testament. And, and is that not true of us? We have a little bit of a sin problem ourselves where we're still trying to figure out how to live the life that honors Christ, how to break through and how to live in the righteousness that God has called us to, how to follow Jesus and really look like Jesus. The God who fights for us is fighting for our righteousness and sometimes chipping away as the potter does on the rough edges. God is fighting for his children and in that fight, sometimes he has to wrestle them into submission. It's easy to blame the enemy. And we know the enemy is working for our harm and destruction. But as the enemy is working for our harm and destruction, the latter part of Genesis gives us this. As the enemy is working for our harm and destruction, God is working for our good. And the purposes that the enemy designs for our destruction, 
for our detriment, God works out for our good. That's the life of Joseph, Jacob's son. Number three, this is the hard one. Wounds are signs of grace. Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. We talked about that this summer. And when Proverbs says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, I told you that what we all need are those friends that love us enough to come and hurt our pride. And to come and say, you missed it. You messed up. You were wrong. You fell short. You sinned. Everyone needs a friend like that. Because those wounds in love are faithful. And how much more the Almighty God, the Holy Transcendent God, the God of all perfections, the God of all eternity, when He sees something in us that is not reflective of, of who He has made us to be, He allows us to undergo circumstances that really hurt so that the wounds that we carry can be like Jacob's limp, a sign of grace. Because we could have been crushed. We could have been destroyed. Jacob could have been crushed and God could have started over. Just like he could have started over with Abraham or started over with... He could have done it differently. But in his love, he couldn't. He chose Jacob. He loved Jacob. And he loved him enough to wound him, to remind him, I am God, you are not, and you live your life before my face. Coram Deo, before the face of God. That is how we live our lives, constantly recognizing God's gaze, God's sight on us, and recognizes that the things that cause us most harm are the things that God uses the most to grow us. If you've ever been a parent, you've known the feeling that you get where you want to protect your children from harm. But the older you get, the less control. The older they get, the less control you get. And the more experiences they have. And someday they're going to have to make their own decisions. They're going to have to live their own lives. And every child is going to get hurt. And you know, the bumps and bruises, those, you can recover from those quickly. But the emotional hurt of a friend who turns their back, the emotional hurt of somebody that, that they're, the first crush that, that shuts them down, or the first boyfriend, girlfriend that, that walks away, chooses somebody else. Those things, you can't protect them from that. And what about when your child faces such a difficult circumstance that they face not just normal growing up hardships, but real trauma, real heartache, real disease? Can you protect them from that? No, you can't. But ask yourself, when has God matured you most? It's always in your suffering. God grows us through suffering. God matures us through suffering. Don't try to protect your kids from that. Don't, don't withhold your kids from those growth periods. Wounds are a sign of grace for us and for our children. And finally, the face of God is all you need. Even if you're left limping along, the face of God is all you need. Are you looking for purpose like Abraham was in, in Genesis 12? God gives you a new purpose. Are you looking for a new perspective? God sees you like he did Hagar. Are you looking for a new power? God gives you the power to turn a laughter of derision into a laughter of joy like he did with Sarah. Are you looking for provision and protected, protection as Jacob was, as he was preparing to face his mortal enemy? God provides. 
All you really need is the face of God and the blessing of God. And so our application for this morning, what we do in light of this, is we seek the face of God. We seek the face of God in whatever ways we can. And sometimes that looks like wrestling. Sometimes it looks like God, I have questions that I don't know the answers to. And I need to find them out. And so I'm going to wrestle. There are things that you have allowed, things that you have done that I don't like. And so God, I'm going to, I'm going to wrestle. I'm going to question. I'm going to search. But I'm going to seek to find answers, not find reasons not to believe. Seek to find answers. One of the greatest ways to wrestle with God is to pray. Even when you don't want to, even when you don't know how, even when you don't know the words to say, even in the silence and the listening, even in the solitude, even in the pain, even in lamenting and sorrow, even in learning to rest in His presence, is to pray. When you don't have the answer, be still and know that I am God. When you don't have the answer, the Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. But we can do this in community. That's why I'm really calling you to pray in community this week. We can do this in community and we can do this in silence and solitude like Jacob did. But if you ask for God to show up, He will. He will. But when God shows up, the fighting God calls us to fight. And our greatest enemy is not Him. God only fights us for our good. God fights for us, not against us. God fights your sin in you that feels like you so that you can be who He truly created you to be. But as He fights for us, He calls us to now be who Jacob became, the one who fought for God, the one who represented God and built a nation in his name. I'm going to ask the band to join me on stage as we prepare to close. Our closing song is an old one, 500 years to be exact. And it's beautiful because it talks about the fight. And it's beautiful because it talks about his power and His protection in ways we can't imagine and we, we just can't do it. it. talks about our greatest enemy. The problem isn't that God is fighting against us, but God is fighting for us. And there is an ancient foe that is seeking to destroy us. But our God is a fortress who has created for us a way to run to Him and find, pre, find protection behind those strong walls. So this is a hymn of Martin Luther that we'll sing, a 500-year-old Reformation hymn that we can sing and reflect on the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus has died, Jesus has risen, and Jesus has made us new. So in all of our wrestling and all of our fighting, we run to the God who is our fortress. Stand and sing